As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. everyone, this is Eric Ribbonis, and this is an interview episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious, Where Blood Runs Cold. My guest today is Brian Johnson, a Twin Cities journalist who has written a brand new book entitled Murder in Chisago County, The Untold Johnson Family Mystery. Great to have you here. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. So this is a story that's very personal to you, isn't it? It is. It is indeed. Um, well, one of the victims uh, was my, my great aunt, Elvira Lundine Johnson. Um, she was my grandmother's sister on my mother's side of the family. Yeah, she and her seven children um, died under very mysterious circumstances in April 1933. And... Uh, the patriarch of the family was um, later, he went missing and was suspected of having killed the family. So it's a story that, uh, you know, I've been familiar with Elvira and her children since I was a little kid. We used to, when I was a kid, on Memorial Day weekend or sometime thereabout, I'd uh, ride with my family up to the cemetery in Rush City and pay our respects at the grave. And so it was always something I always knew about it from the time I was very young. But, you know, I didn't know the kind of the grisly backstory until much later when I started to do some investigating. So I, I, I always thought at the time when I was a kid that it was just this terrible fire that they died accidentally. And I learned later that it was much, um, 
more than that. So, so your parents kept that from you on purpose, or had they just not fully researched or learned about the case on their own? Yeah, I don't know. I think my mother certainly knew about it. I think it's just the kind of thing you don't talk about with a young child. And so, you know, I, I kind of had to learn on my own the full story of what happened. You know, insofar as what we know, obviously there's a lot of unanswered questions, but, um, you know, it wasn't until probably when I was in college or close to that time that I really started to poke into it and, and uh, find out the details about, you know, the fact that the patriarch of the family went missing and was accused of murder and and that whole thing so yeah i was going to ask you about that was there some sort of catalyst that spurred you to start researching this on your own was there some little voice in the back of your head that said i really want to learn more about this someday yeah it was a combination of things i would say well first of all i'm a i'm a journalist and i've been a journalist for 25 plus years now and so you know as a journalist you're naturally curious and you're you want to know things and and so I think that that natural curiosity came into play and just wanting to tell this story and um, so yeah it's been in the back of my mind for for quite quite a number of years that you know this was a book waiting to be written and actually in the early 1990s I, I wrote an article about the case, and that was published in the uh, uh, local newspaper up in the Rush City area. And uh, you know, from that time on, I always thought, yeah, I'd really like to turn this into a book someday. And you know, life intervened, and I got married at kind of a later age, and ended up having a child, and then a second, and then a third, and then a fourth, and obviously family obligations took precedent in my life and other things and and so didn't really have the time to really dig into it and my kids are a little bit older now and so you know in the last i would say year and a half to two years is when i really started to um sort of take this project to the next level is this a crime that that haunts rush city do do people remember it in town or has it been pushed into the back of the public consciousness? Well, yeah, I think it does haunt the city to a certain extent. I, I, I did have the privilege of interviewing some, some old-timers in town who remembered about it, either from hearing the story from their parents or other relatives who were around at the time, or just you know, maybe they did some research on their own. But I, I definitely get the sense that you know, this is something that still still haunts some people there. I don't know if that's the correct word to use, but it's it's a story that uh, people are familiar with it. People know about it in in that in East Central Minnesota, and um, you know, not so much here in the Twin Cities where I'm from. But yeah, I would definitely say there's knowledge of it and interest in it, and certainly some people are perhaps haunted by it and. And I think the town is split, too, you know, among some of the old timers. Some people that I talked to, a surprising number of people, believe that Alvin Johnson just was innocent, that he wasn't capable of 
committing these crimes and and other people said oh no absolutely he did it and he got away and uh, made his way to Canada or something like that so that was interesting to me so the Johnson family in 1933 mm-hmm. uh, were they a happy family were you able to find information about that aspect of the story well yeah I can tell you a little bit about that I know um so by the way the the Johnsons in this story are not related by blood to me <laughs> even though my name is Johnson I'm related on the Lundin side of the family oh interesting um, yeah, yeah explain yeah, that yeah my father's name happened to be Johnson but he's not one of this part of this Johnson clan <laughs> so just to clarify that but yeah um you know I I I, I know that Alvin Johnson his uh, mother and father came to the United States from Sweden in about the early 1880s. That was uh, Emil Johnson and Cecilia Blomberg Johnson. And so so they were Swedish immigrants, and they had some, they managed to um, buy some farmland. They started a family that eventually included four sons and three daughters, Alvin was born in January of 1890 um, near Harris. You know, it seemed like, you know, on the surface, they seemed like a pretty normal, stable family. I know Emil Johnson was well-respected in the community. He helped build the Lutheran Church in town, was a charter member of the Harris Lutheran Church. Um, they, they raised their children in the church. Alvin Johnson was confirmed in 1904 i i found a, actually a, a, his confirmation picture at the church which was kind of interesting um but yeah in many ways they seemed very normal but i think there was probably you know a darker side too you know on the one hand they seemed like pillars of the community but on the other hand emil johnson ended up kicking his son and daughter and seven grandchildren off the farm during the Great Depression. So that's something that I've had a hard time wrapping my mind around. Um, and, you know, what could possess someone to do that? I'm not sure. But uh, as for Alvin and his brothers, I understand that they were kind of rough, tough characters. They liked to drink a lot. Um, sometimes got into fights and, you know, were not uh, the nicest people to be around all the time. But, um, you know, I, I don't know of any criminal history prior to this tragedy. I don't know that he actually ran afoul of the law or anything like that. But, um, you know, he was a he was a big, strong guy, six foot three, 240 pounds, strong hands. He worked as a laborer. He had worked for a time in Canada uh, as a, a lumberjack. He had he had some, you know, just a, kind of a kind of your typical big woodsman, farmer, laborer kind of guy. Um, didn't have much of an education. He um, quit school at the end of sixth grade, is my understanding. But yeah, that's just kind of what I know about him and. Yeah, he and his brothers were rough, tough guys, though, from what I understand. 
So was Elbin a farmer? He was. Actually, he, um, he operated the farm that his father owned, and he did that for a number of years, and he had a hard time making a go of it as a farmer. I understand that the, the land there wasn't very suitable for farming. It was kind of, kind of hilly, and it wasn't great for growing crops or anything like that. I know he, had, he raised some some livestock there and things of that nature, but you know, just uh, had a hard time making a go of it as a farmer. And I believe at one time sought employment in the cities, and that didn't work out. So we ended up back in the the Harris area, and um, he tried at one time to get a job at the uh, mill in Rush City where uh, his brother-in-law worked and, and his brother-in-law wasn't brother-in-law named Matt Scherer. That didn't work out, so he went back to farming and, and, and then it just finally got to the point where I think Emil Johnson, the father, just said that, you know, it was time to let one of the other brothers maybe have a go of it on the farm or you know, maybe it's his idea of tough love that he would evict his son. And well, that's the toughest kind of love, as you said. I mean, right in the worst part of the depression. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And that's something that I've struggled with. Is I'm, I'm not sure what could possess him to do that, but and that happened right. I, I mean, the the family was literally getting ready to move off the farm. Uh, on the uh, when the fire happened, they had a big wagon out in front of the farmhouse, packed with with all their belongings, and they were ready to go. And then the and then the fire happened. So that was sometime in the early morning or the late evening of April tenth or April eleventh, nineteen thirty three. Correct. Correct. The the fire was discovered around 3 or 3.30 in the morning, in the morning of April 11th. I believe it was a Tuesday morning. A neighbor, a gentleman named Ragnar Krantz, discovered the fire and immediately set out to help and alerted the fire department, uh, which had to come from Rush City, I believe. But by the time anyone got there, the, the house was virtually burned to the ground. There was just a small corner standing and it was obviously too late to help anyone, assuming that they had been alive at the time. But then it was later determined by the authorities that the mother and seven children were dead before the fire. <sighs> so, not to get too graphic, mm-hmm. but the bodies were still intact enough that authorities were able to determine that foul play of some kind was involved. Correct. They, uh, th- there wasn't, my understanding, there wasn't a whole lot left of their bodies, but they were able to determine that the bodies were found in their sleeping positions. And the theory was that if any of them had been alive, that at least one or two or more of them would have made some attempt to to escape, to get out of the house, but that apparently wasn't the case. And 
it's not clear exactly how they might have been killed. Um, in different newspaper reports I saw, there, I, I know they talked about maybe there was um, perhaps they had been shot or poisoned or bludgeoned or um, that was never actually made clear though. And that's one of the enduring mysteries of this story is, you know, exactly how they met their death. Well, even if they hadn't been killed by the fire, the fire would have been an act of murder, right? Assuming that they couldn't get out. Yeah, I believe so. I, I certainly don't believe it was an accident. It would have been quite the coincidence for this house to suddenly go up, go up in flames and kill everyone inside at just that moment of desperation when the family's being kicked off the farm. Were you ever able to locate a coroner's report? You know, that's something that I, I really attempted to find as many public records as I could, but it just ran into one dead end after another, and I think most of the records have either disappeared or for some reason they aren't being released. I did find some details about the uh, folks who, wit- who, who witnessed that, the, uh, the, the coroner's jury, um, there was some reporting about that in the period newspapers in 1933, um, but I haven't seen a whole lot in terms of official records, and I, I attempted to get records of the grand jury proceedings because Alvin was actually indicted in, in uh, October of 1933, and as you probably know, grand jury proceedings typically aren't made public, but it was my my argument was that you know 85 years later none of these people are alive anymore and you know in the interests of history and 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 documenting this telling this story i i actually appealed to the Chicago County District Court to release those records and the last i heard was just actually as recently as uh, last uh, fall, when I was just finishing up the manuscript, they said, well, as a search of the archives came up empty. And so, I mean, either they searched in good faith for the records and they simply weren't there anymore, or maybe they're stonewalling me. But in any case, I, w- I <laughs> would really like to see the, the grand jury proceedings, but haven't been haven't been successful in in getting that. Yeah, it's really frustrating. 80 plus years later, right? Mm-hmm. Right. You never know what, what happened to these things. I mean, they could have been sitting in a dusty box somewhere and thrown out by the janitor. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. What a shame. So the house, as you've said, was consumed by fire. But was there any evidence found? Yeah, well, I heard, I read in one of the um, newspaper accounts back in 1933 that some pistols and rifles had been found in the uh, either in the house or, or immediately next to it, and and that there's also a report of a, a, a gas can or a kerosene can that perhaps was used obviously to torch the house. You know, there could have been an innocent explanation. For the firearms, I suppose, maybe they've been used for hunting or whatever. But that's that's what I know about any kind of physical evidence or evidence of you know a murder weapon. I 
you know, I'm not sure where they came up with the theory that they might have been poisoned. You know, that was another thing that was floated. And interestingly about the kerosene can, I I interviewed a, a gentleman who had been, um, uh, worked as a Chisago County Sheriff back in the 60s and 70s, I believe. And he said that there was a kerosene can in some evidence locker in uh, Chisago County just collecting dust. And he he had asked someone what that was for, and, and, and he was told that, yeah, it was tied to the, uh, the the Johnson family tragedy. So as far as I know, that can might still be collecting dust somewhere in an evidence locker. What were the names and ages of the children at the time of their deaths? Yeah, so the, the kids were ages, um, the youngest was only four months and the oldest was 10 years old. There were five boys and two girls. And I'm just going on memory now, but the oldest boy was Harold. So it was Harold, Clifford, Kenneth, Lester, and James were the boys. James was the four-month-old. And uh, Dorothy and Bernice were the girls. How did this investigation proceed? Who was in charge, and what were their first steps in trying to figure this all out? Sure. Well, uh, a gentleman from the state, I, I believe the state um, of Minnesota named Leonard Lund, came to Rush City to lead the investigation, at least in theory. But there was also uh, two people who were very active in the investigation were the deputy coroner, Albert O. Stark, and uh, the county attorney, S.B. Wennerberg. So my understanding was the first step was to just, well, and and of course the fire marshal, the the fire chief, a gentleman named Frank Hansen, was one of the first ones on the scene. And he did just an immediate search of the area, searching all around the house to determine if, you know, maybe someone had tried to, had gotten out or succeeded in getting away. And, you know, I'm sure he knew that this was a family where young children lived there. So I'm sure that was a concern of his. You know, they searched the the premises and outbuildings and things of that nature. And so that was the first step to determine who might have been, who might have died in the fire and who might have escaped. And then they, they just went into determining possible cause of death. They, as I mentioned before, they, they judged in large part by their sleeping positions and determined that they were dead at the time or before the fire. And then there was just an all hands on deck manhunt for Alvin Johnson. And I know they, they dragged the nearby St. Croix River. They searched all the farm area, all around that area. They had 300 people, a posse of 300 people searching. And I believe my grandfather was actually one of those searchers. And yeah, the search extended up into Canada. Uh, The Royal Canadian Mounted Police became involved. The Pinkertons were involved. Um, And I believe it was my great-grandmother, Elvira's mother, who, who hired the Pinkertons. And they offered a $50 reward for information leading to the whereabouts of Alvin Johnson. So 
yeah, they just they just hit it real hard searching for Alvin and um you know, and then he he was indicted, like I said, in the fall of that year. But they they never found him and, and I think one interesting side note that this happened at the time of Bonnie and Clyde were at the height of their notoriety. You know, you had the Carpus uh Barker gang and Dillinger and I mean this was a time when you had some real characters out there um and and the and law enforcement had its hands full and it's kind of my theory that you know it, it got to the point after a few months where you know people's just simply lost interest in this missing nobody farmer from Harris Minnesota and so it just kind of faded into history Resources were stretched thin, right? Absolutely. And law enforcement, as it existed at the time, it's my understanding that, you know, just from the people I talked to, if you were a big, strong guy, they put a badge on you and said, here you go. And certainly not, uh, obviously not as scientific or nothing like modern police investigations, obviously. So, Why do you think he might have gone to Canada? Yeah, he had worked in Canada in 1917 and 18 thereabouts. He worked in uh, the area of Prelate, Saskatchewan. He was, uh, uh, worked in the as a, a lumberjack and um, had worked as a farmhand in Canada. And, and apparently, he had um, talked just recently, not long before the fire kind of waxing nostalgic about the old days in Canada and talking about wanting to return there. And, you know, obviously he had some connections there since he had lived and worked there, you know, in the, in the teens. So, so that was, that was uh, one of the theories that he made his way back to Canada and perhaps tried to assume a new identity and, and fade in the background. So during the time that this was being investigated, what did authorities believe was his motive for doing this? Yeah, I think the the motive was that he was just in a terribly desperate situation. He was dirt poor, didn't have a, a dime to his name, really. And here he was being kicked off the farm by his own father. And I think the, the theory was that he just snapped and you know, maybe uh, felt like he wasn't able to take care of his family anymore. And so that was his way of dealing with it. You said that he was indicted even while absent. He, he was indicted by a grand jury in uh, October of 1933. And um, really liked to learn more about the evidence that was presented there. But you know, obviously there's uh, there, there was enough evidence submitted at that time to convince the jury that you know, there was a pretty decent chance that he had committed these murders. So you've mentioned that resources were just not there, and the whole thing started losing steam after a while. Right. Did the case ever resurface over time, or did it just fizzle out? Well, it fizzled out, uh, but there was an interesting kind of sidebar to the story in that um, Alvin Johnson had a a brother-in-law named Harry Galpin, who was really, 
Alvin's biggest defender, um, and he went to great lengths to try to prove that Alvin had indeed died in the fire and that um, the authorities, for some reason, that he didn't really fully explain, but that the authorities were essentially railroading an innocent man. And he, at one point in, I believe it was 1939, fired off this scathing affidavit uh, that accused pretty much everyone involved in the investigation of being either crooked or corrupt or incompetent or all of the above. And um, it was his contention that, you know, Alvin had indeed died in the fire and either they tampered with the evidence, perhaps. Uh, maybe they allowed, you know, onlookers to tamper with the evidence. You know, he, basically, he was trying to clear Alvin's name. And his his intention was to get a, a, a death certificate and to have him declared dead. You know, and he even tried to get the governor, Floyd B. Olson, involved. And the governor wasn't about to stick his neck out on that. So, but that was kind of a, that that happened, like I said, around 1933 or so. And, you know, Galpin ended up getting in trouble with the law himself over that whole thing. And, you know, he, he died just not too long afterwards. And, you know, ever ever since then, it just kind of, the story kind of went away, but it's still, you know, there. I I, I didn't haven't seen any between between the late 1930s and the time I wrote that story for the Post Review when I wrote that history piece. I I, I wasn't able to come up with really anything um, in between as far as anyone reporting a break in the case or new evidence or anything of that nature. So, but people still remember it. People still talk about it and you know there are urban legends and all kinds of crazy things like that that people you know still talk about today so as the story has been passed down through your family Mm -hmm. do you believe collectively that albin had something to do with this or is it open to debate well it's interesting that's a great question when i when i started researching this and sort of gathering um, information I my thought was 100% no doubt about it Alvin did it he probably made his way to Canada he he got away with murder and I just thought that that's it um and then as I started to talk to more people I yeah I talked to some locals who were sincerely believed that oh he couldn't have done that there's no way, you know, just based on information they heard from parents or uh, uncles or grandparents or whatever that, no, he couldn't have done that. And I started to, I started to question my initial assumptions, I guess, just a little bit. And I tried to be open-minded about it, be open to the possibility that, yeah, maybe this was just a freak accident or maybe... Maybe there was even some you know, hanky-panky on the part of the authorities. Um, you know, maybe their hands weren't clean either. But then I kind of went back to my initial position that, you know, I just don't see any other explanation. I just think it really stretches the imagination to think that 
you know, this might have been an accident or that there was some grand conspiracy um, to railroad Alvin Johnson. So kind of back to where I initially was. And, you know, I, I should mention, too, that my mother, who is still living, she's almost 98 years old now, but she was 12 years old at the time of the fire. And so she remembers it. She remembers when it happened. And, and she's pretty much been convinced, too, that Alvin was guilty and um you know he somehow got away so it's hard to imagine a different explanation considering his body wasn't there yeah right he was larger than the others so for his body to be burned up while the other bodies weren't it makes no sense well right he was a like i said he was a very big man six foot three 240 pounds and they found the remains of a four-month-old child, and they even apparently found the remains of the family dog. But this big man somehow wasn't found. That you know, that doesn't doesn't make sense to me. So yeah, I think he he got away. Can you think of any other scenarios? Well, it's interesting because there are some other theories that have been out of there. Uh, have been floated around, not necessarily based in too much fact, but speculation. I mean, there was some speculation that maybe the brothers, Alvin's brothers, had something to do with it because they wanted to take over the property. That's kind of hard for me to believe because if you want to take over the property, why would you burn the house down and why would you take out an entire family? And besides, Alvin was actually in the process of being evicted from the farm <laughs> at the time. So that doesn't make much sense to me. But, you know, there were reports that, you know, one of the uh, one of the brothers was seen plowing the field just the next morning, like right after this happened. And, you know, the insinuation was that maybe maybe they had buried him in a field um, and, and they had, someone had reportedly seen another one of Alvin's dogs uh, running around, running circles around the same spot, a particular spot in the field, you know, supposedly looking for his master. So that's kind of what fueled that speculation. But, yeah, it's an interesting story, but I don't put much stock in it. The other confusing thing about it, too, as you said, Alvin didn't have a dime to his name. Right. So how would he get away? What resources would he have to escape so easily? It is interesting because there were reports that he had actually borrowed $20 just before the fire from his brother Hank and that he was supposed to use that money for a down payment on a new home in Rush City. So maybe he did have a little, you know, he did apparently have a little bit of money and well 20 bucks in those days was not inconsequential not insignificant so he 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 may have had some means to get away and you know there's a, a railroad tracks that cut right through town so there is a possibility he might have been able to hop on a train or go by foot to down to the St. Croix River and get on a seaworthy vessel and make his way to parts unknown. I mean, these are some of the theories that have been talked about. I don't believe they owned a car or a truck or anything like that. And there's no sign that he 
commandeered a horse or anything like that. So I believe it's most likely he made his way on foot for at least part of the way. So, so where is the, the farm in relation to Rush City and the railroad tracks? How, how far away? Well, it's I, I don't know. I don't recall exactly how far, but I know it was, I'm quite sure, within fairly easy walking distance of the railroad tracks. And, you know, I think the same thing with the river, he probably could have, you know, that would have been maybe a little more of a hike, but it's possible he could have made his way in that direction east. So, yeah, I'm guessing, you know, a couple miles, but not, it it certainly, uh, I think, was doable. A couple of miles isn't far. He would have had to have started the fire himself. Yeah. And it was still burning when authorities got there. Mm-hmm. He must have gotten lucky and managed to make his escape without running into anyone. Yeah, I think he, he probably had some kind of a plan. But, you know, it would have been a while before they realized that uh, he was missing because the initial assumption was that, you know, the entire family had died in the fire. And so a certain amount of time would have passed before this manhunt actually happened. And so, you know, cause I saw some of the initial news reports that came out, the Associated Press reported that, you know, an entire family of nine died in this house fire. And of course, assuming that Alvin was among the victims. So he would have had a little bit of a head start, certainly. What does your, your family think about your book? Oh, they're excited about it. I know my my mother is very happy about it and and excited to see it come out. And I have um, cousins in in Oregon who are excited about it. And my my Aunt Betty, I should have mentioned her as well. My my Aunt Betty Colas, who was uh, a niece of Elvira's. I also interviewed her and, and she had some interesting recollections and memories. She was pretty young at the time. I'm very young, actually. She was only four years old, I believe, at the time of the fire. But she did actually remember being in the house at least one time. And she remembered also going to the scene of the fire a number of years later when she was still, you know, maybe 10 or 11 years old. And she said it just kind of gave her the creeps and she couldn't wait to get away from there. But yeah, they're all, to answer your question, they're they're all excited about it and happy that um, the story is being told. And, you know, I think that's part of what motivated me was to, you know, I want future generations to know about this family and to kind of get to know Elvira and the kids as real people. And I mean, to the extent that people are aware of the fire, they're, they're just names. They're just victims. And, you know, I want future generations to, remember this family so um. you've got some great family photographs in there too yeah thanks yeah that was uh most of those were just from our private collection and it's 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 nice to put a put a face to these to these people as well and yeah just want future generations to remember them so yeah what's there now at the site of the farm so um it's now um it's uh, uh, just a private home is on the site and 
the current resident, I believe, has lived there since the early 70s. And um, he knows the whole backstory of what happened there. And, and actually, he was had done his share of research as well and kind of had some theories about what might have happened. But, um, but yeah, it's, a, it's just a private residence there now. And um, this gentleman who lives there now actually um, about 10 years ago invited my mother and myself and uh, I believe one of my daughters went along. But um, we actually were invited onto the property, and you know he was nice enough to show us around. And you could still see part of the foundation from the original house, so that was kind of kind of interesting. Yeah, to actually be there at that same place. Yeah, it uh, kind of sent chills up and down your spine just to, you know, when when you know the history of the place and. You know, it was interesting in the, the the shock podcast that you had that I just listened to recently. I, I believe it was brought out that uh, some people thought that maybe that farm had been, you know, the land was cursed or something. And and from what I understand about the the Alvin Johnson place, there was just you know one bad uh, incident after another, and people going being foreclosed on, and it was just. I, you know, I don't want to say it's cursed or anything because the gentleman who lives there now seems to be happy and <laughs> doing well <laughs> and successful. But at least insofar as it was a farming operation, it was uh, certainly uh, not not very successful. So. so tell us about the book, where people can get it and some of the events that you've coordinated with the launch. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so... The book will be released on this Monday, March 4th. I have a book launch event in Rush City at the Rashiba Town Hall on March 14th at 7 p.m. So hope to see a lot of people out there for that. And um, the book is available for sale on um, online on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or your favorite online bookseller, and also at uh, Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. And, I have to put in a plug for them. I'm, I, you know, they're a great publisher, and I'm glad that they uh, believed in me and believed in my project, and um, just really uh, can't say enough good things about them. So, um, but yeah, it's it's available for pre-sale now, and it should be in the bookstores for real next week. I'm I'm told. So I encourage people to go out and buy the book and support a local author. And absolutely. And congratulations on getting this done. I know, I know firsthand that it's a gigantic chunk of time that you've spent doing this. <laughs> yeah, it really is. And, and you know, I was doing this on a speculative basis because I had no idea that this book would ever be published or see the light of day. And, you know, you kind of think about it. Am I just wasting my time? Or, yeah, thankfully, um, it's it's out there and it'll be in the bookstores real soon. So. Very, very pleased about that. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Well, this has been great. Thanks. Well, well, thank you, Eric. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of your show. I just got turned on to it recently, but uh, I'm a huge fan, and I, I, I appreciate the time and the opportunity to chat with you about this. I really do. Oh, no problem. I've been speaking to Brian Johnson, the author of the brand-new book, Murder in Chisago County, the Untold Johnson Family Mystery. 
been great to have you here again today. Thank you so much for subscribing and tuning in. This is Eric Rivenis with another episode of Minnesota's Most Notorious, Where Blood Runs Cold. I'll talk to you soon.